Well, friends, it's Christmas time. Great time of the year to be a pastor, and it's a great Sunday to be at church. It's a great Sunday to listen to this choir. My goodness. One of our culture's favorite traditions is exchanging gifts at Christmas time. And I don't know if in your family or your office you have a name for this, whether it's white elephant or pass the trash. In my wife's family, in my wife's family, they call it rob your neighbor. So it's a big, giant family, and everybody brings a little gift, which may or may not be desirable. You don't know until you find out when you unwrap it. And you put it in the middle in this big pile, and then you sit in a circle, and they pass around these bowls with two dice in them. And as soon as your dice add up to a six, you go grab a gift from the middle. If you roll doubles of any number, you then get to steal a gift from someone else in the circle. Because nothing brings in the Christmas spirit like spite and robbery, right? <laughs> so uh, that's, that's one tradition uh, that our family has. I worked with a friend in St. Louis who called these gift exchanges... She referred them as Dirty Santa. And we were like, no, okay, we're not doing that. We can't do that. So if you're a Dirty Santa person, bless you uh, this Christmas. So this season, we're, we're celebrating with this theme uh, for our, our Advent Sermon Series, Gift Exchange. We're looking at the gifts uh, that we can exchange with God, and it's in our favor. In the tradition of the church, the four weeks of Advent, uh, which, as we already heard earlier in this service, mean uh, coming or arrival from Latin. Uh, that's what Advent means. Each week we're going to light a candle, and that's to remind us of one of four things God's hope, love, joy, and peace. So this week we're looking at hope and how we can exchange our fear and receive God's hope. And what I hope we'll discover together as we study God's word uh, is for us not to let a worst case mentality keep us from God's best, that we might miss it. My wife and I often have very different approaches to the same situation. Uh, that might be an understatement. For, for us, one of those is like on the 4th of July and our kids lighting fireworks. I tend to be a person who thinks, what's the worst that can happen? My wife tends to think of actually all the worst things that could happen. <laughs> uh, I'm very grateful for her perspective, uh, and I am certain that our life expectancies will all be longer because of it. Uh, you know, she tends to uh, think about, like, what happens if the kids light a firework and blow off their finger. And I think about, well, if the kids don't light any fireworks, then they won't have any fun. These are things, different things we worry about. Uh, we all have different things we're afraid of. Some things are very rational, like making sure your kids are safe while lighting fireworks. Other times, our fears are less, less rational. This week, we had a visitor come to our front porch. It was a stray cat, and my wife actually got a picture of it. Check it out. Oh! <sighs> I'm already not a cat person. I don't need help finding cats demonic. This ain't, this ain't helping the felines. And my five-year-old, our five-year-old daughter, Betsy, petrified, inconsolable. Now, to Betsy's credit, that is one ominous feline, right? But she was just screaming. She didn't want to go outside. She was afraid it'd run in. And we tried to explain, like, Betsy, it'll be more afraid of you than you are of it. Like, the phrase is called scaredy cat, right? It's, it's going to be scared. And she just, it, we couldn't get her to see that it was irrational to be so scared of the stray cat. 
Now, what's even harder is getting over rational fears or dealing with fears that are very well-founded. How do we do that? In our scripture today, we're going to consider Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, and all the different reasons he had to be fearful. But in spite of all of those, after receiving a message from God, Joseph moved forward with hope. And God, in that process, sent Joseph a message via an angel. So that's the episode we're going to be reading about today from the book of Matthew, starting in chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. This word Messiah that's used in the first sentence, it's a very loaded one. It comes from the Hebrew word, which means anointed or chosen one. And the people of Israel had been expecting for generations a Messiah who would come and restore the greatness of the kingdom of Israel. This meant in very real geopolitical terms, like kicking out the Romans who currently occupied their country. That was what was expected of this Messiah. And so to connect what was happening with all the prophecies that had happened before, Matthew, the author of this book, when he uses this word, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, it's as if he's saying, this is it. This is the thing we've been waiting for. And then we read about Joseph and Mary being engaged. Now, the cultural norms around engagement and marriage were very different in the first century than in 2022. Marriages were arranged, and when a young man and a young woman uh, formally were betrothed by their families, there was a period of about a year or a year and a half before the actual wedding ceremony, but they were also considered somewhat legally married at the time, even in that interlude. And so before the actual marriage, if there were to be uh, unfaithfulness or uh, adultery, the only way that this betrothal could be dissolved was, would be through a legal reversal, which would have been equivalent to a divorce. And so a pregnancy before they came together would have been considered adultery and grounds for, for a legal divorce. But Joseph wants to treat Mary kindly under what he is perceiving the circumstances to be. Um, there, were, there were severe punishments for adultery according to the Old Testament law. Now, we read a lot about those, like the woman is to be placed on trial at the city gates. We read less about what happens to the men in that equation, but that's another sermon for another time. In any case, this is what Joseph is considering, verses 19 and 20. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So according to before the angel appeared in Joseph's dream, according to his understanding of the scenario and his understanding and tradition of Jewish law, uh, he could have ended he and Mary's betrothal, but he receives a message from God. We get the word angel from the Greek word angelos. And this messenger tells Joseph in a dream, do not be afraid. I'd like to consider for a moment the very rational list of things Joseph has to fear. Right? I think we got a list of these. You know, that he's in a relationship where his future partner has already been unfaithful. That his new marriage will begin in scandal. That he and Mary will suffer from a social stigma and be ostracized even if they get divorced. 
Joseph could have been afraid about the circumstances under which Mary had become pregnant. Had she been victimized? Joseph could be fearful of raising a child that's not his own, which as it turns out is kind of true because he's told, I think, confirming what might be his biggest reason to fear, is that what is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. These are very rational things for Joseph to be afraid of. An irrational fear would be the Chiefs losing to the Rams today when they play their third-string quarterback, who I'm told's name is Bryce Perkins, going against Bryce Perkins today. So that's an irrational thing to be afraid of. But I, I think Joseph, Joseph's potential fear, I think, would be a very appropriate and understandable, rational fear. When you hear that your almost spouse is with child, oh, and the origin is the Holy Spirit. I think there's a danger in, in becoming too familiar with these episodes in the scripture. Like Matthew one twenty, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That is a blockbuster, jaw-dropping concept. But when we get super familiar with Christmas, oh yeah, you know, virgin birth, okay. When, when's the ham done? Like, we, we, we gotta, it's hard to get our, our minds into the the frame of mind Joseph might have had. But this is a history-altering concept. And if I was Joseph, I think I would have needed a direct message from an angel in a dream because this is a 100% crazy thing to believe. But that wasn't the end of the message. Verse 21 says that she, Mary, will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So we arrive at the English name or rendering Jesus by a long and winding road. The book of Matthew was written in Greek. Centuries later, that would be translated into Latin and then from the Latin translated into English. So Jesus, uh, what we render in English, comes from the Greek form of Jesus, or excuse me, of Yeshua, which in Greek is Jesus, And that means Yahweh is salvation or the Lord saves. Our equivalent to that would be Joshua. But it's likely, or it's pretty certain, the word Jesus would have heard growing up as an adult wasn't Jesus or Jesus. It was Yeshua. That was the original Hebrew name. So I want to clarify this. You know I love my Microsoft Word charts. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. In Greek, it's Jesus. In Latin, it's Iesus, and that's where we get the English word Jesus. So we get the name Jesus from Hebrew, translated into Greek, translated into Latin, translated into English. So I'm not trying to like ruin anything for you. Jesus didn't hear the words Jesus when he was running around as a little boy. It was Yeshua. But however we translate it, they all mean the same thing. The Lord saves. And the angel told Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. Mary isn't just carrying a child. She's carrying the hope of humanity. And verse 24 tells us, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary as his wife and gave him the name Jesus. Joseph could have had many reasons to to be fearful And think, well, what if this isn't true? 
fear could have motivated him to have a quiet divorce and an exit strategy from this nutso story. But the message the angel gave Joseph was a message of hope. The child's name would mean the Lord saves, and that was the child's mission, to save. Hope propelled Joseph to think, what if this is true? And he was obedient, even though Joseph could have in no way ever predicted what would happen to this child. His birth, his life and teachings, and his death and resurrection. Joseph moved forward without knowing any of that. Fear, it it tends to conserve, uh, to protect, and and to hold back out of self-preservation. Hope tends to risk. Uh, Hope tends to make you vulnerable. Hope tends to to open up to possibilities. Hope has a more optimistic feel to it. And so fear and hope answer the question, what if, very, very differently. Fear answers the question, what if, in a negative sense. What if this happens or this happens? Hope answers the question, what if, in a very positive sense. What if it is true? Now, my experience is that fear may not be totally absent, but it's that we move forward in spite of the presence of fear. One of my favorite quotes comes from Game of Thrones, and there's a scene where a young man is talking to his father about this upcoming battle. And he says, how can I be brave if I'm afraid? And the father says, that's the only time a man can be brave, when he is afraid. It turns out that's the only time hope is necessary. In the face of fear, you don't need a whole lot of hope when you're not risking anything, when there's nothing at stake or when the outcome is certain. Very little hope is required, if any at all. Hope is what we have in the absence, not in the absence of fear, but in the face of it. And so this season, I wonder, what fears are you experiencing? Chapman University does regular studies on the fears of Americans. And when given a variety of phobias to select from, Americans consistently respond that their greatest fear is public speaking. More than strangers, more than heights, more than stray cats. Now, maybe you don't resonate with this, but as someone who speaks publicly with some regularity, I can tell you that I never sleep well Saturday night, and I typically feel sick Sunday morning. And, and I am 100% faking it right until about 10.30. By the time I get to y'all, I'm pretty warmed up. <laughs> but, but why is it that we're afraid to speak publicly? So I don't think it's speaking that's the problem. I think there's something below it, and that what we really fear is failing publicly. We fear failure in a very public way. I think about this quote from Seth Godin all the time. And if I was you, this, this sounds a little manipulative. I would take a picture of this on the screen. Seth Godin said, anxiety is experiencing failure in advance. Woo! I think that is so true. We subject ourselves to the fear of failure all the time. 
And Joseph could have foreseen his scenario with this worst case mindset. And, and he could have let his fear rob him of experiencing Jesus in the most unique way. One of two people to call themselves a parent of the Christ child. Now what's at stake for us this season may not be as intense or historically monumental as parenting the Christ child. But I don't want some comparison to Joseph to minimize whatever it is that you carry in here with you. I think we could probably all make a pretty good list of very rational fears this season. How am I going to pay for all this? Maybe we fear facing the holidays again or for the first time without someone we love dearly. Maybe there's a diagnosis that we're fearful of or that we're fearing the outcome of once we've received it. We, we just talked about forgiveness for three weeks before this. I think fear can keep us from attempting to reconcile. Well, what if they reject that concept? I mean, we could go, again, I don't need to name these for you. There's just a small sample. But I think we have very rational fears that happen all the time. I think a good question is, what might these fears be keeping us from? You know, it's like, it's like my daughter and the cat. If, if fear keeps us locked in the house, what might be, we be missing that God has for us outside? This worst case mentality, this experiencing failure in advance, it can make us potentially miss God's best. So don't let your picture of the worst case scenario prevent you from receiving or experiencing God's best vision for your life. So what if this Christmas we give God our fear and in its place receive God's hope? I have a friend who said to me once, Christians have a toxic relationship with hope. I about died on the spot. I was like, what? That's our whole deal. We're in the hope business. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized he had a point. You ever seen this meme, the this is fine meme? You ever see this? Everything's on fire around you, but you're just, you're just going to sip on your coffee and, and pretend this is fine. Right? Hope does not mean pretending everything's okay when it's not. Or just blindly expecting something to change for the positive. That's not hope. That's a wish. That's a wish. Hope is based on something real. 
In the New Testament, we read a lot of these letters. They're, the fancy word for them is the epistles. Letters written to Christian communities. And the author of many of them's name is Paul. And at the beginning of all of these letters, most of them anyway, you see like greetings, customary greetings. And in one of those greetings in 1 Timothy, we read this. This is how the letter starts. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. For the Christian, hope is not a vague concept. Hope is a person. For the Christian, hope isn't sentimentality. Do, 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 No, it's a person. So when fear is keeping you in self-preservation mode, when you're stuck experiencing failure in advance, my hope for all of us is we can each receive the hope that God offers us. Hope for today, hope for tomorrow, and hope for eternity. In Psalm 23, it famously says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now you know it's getting serious when we go King James at First United Methodist Church on a Sunday morning. Every day you can have hope knowing that God is with you. Now, this doesn't mean we'll never struggle. Notice that it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I, I said last week, my preference a lot of times for God is that God would make things easier. So I'm interested in God providing me a detour around the valley of the shadow of death, but it doesn't always seem to work that way. And, and so what this means is, is not that we'll never struggle. It means we don't have to face the struggle alone. Psalm 23 famously uses agricultural language of a sheep. And so it talks about the rod and the staff. The rod was a shortened uh, wooden, almost like a blade, that, that was used to fend off and maybe even kill predators for the sheep. It was to protect the sheep from animals that wanted to make the sheep the prey. And the staff, you can picture this long crook at the end, and the staff would both nudge sheep when they got off track, literally, and it would also scoop them out of danger if they fell into some thistles or bushes or crags and rocks or all sorts of things. And I love this imagery because we can have hope that God will not abandon us to the threats of others nor the trouble we get ourselves into. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Friends, there's hope for today because God is with you. But there's hope not just for today, but for tomorrow. We read in Deuteronomy, going Old Testament this morning. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. What a simple but revolutionary thought. That God goes before you. Before a contentious meeting at work, God goes before you. Before whatever junk you got to put up with from cruel kids at school, God goes before you. When you are praying for your grandchild that you love so much to find their way back, isn't it a good thing to know that as much as you love that child, it pales in comparison to God's love for them and that God goes before you. 
if we're going to try and do anything worthwhile, any type of change uh, in our family, in our office, in our school, in our city, in the world, any type of change is, is going to require some sacrifice and, and it's going to require some risk. And those things can create fear. But don't let anxiety convince you that fear goes before you. Don't, don't let uh, the concept of experiencing failure in advance speak louder than the concept of Deuteronomy, that God goes before us. Let's not never try anything because we're afraid to fail. Let's not try to make any impactful change because we don't think it'll matter anyway. You can have hope for tomorrow because God goes before you. Hope for today, God is with you. Hope for tomorrow, God goes before you. And this hope we possess isn't just for today or tomorrow, but for eternity. And I love this scripture we're going to read. The Bible tells us very plainly that if this were the case, if it was only for temporal life that we believed in Jesus, it says people should feel bad for us. This is from 1 Corinthians 15. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. I just love that. I love straight talk from the Bible. If this is all made up, people should feel bad for us. When I read this verse, I think to myself, if I paid 60 grand to go to seminary for nothing, I'm going to be real mad. (laughs) People should feel bad for us. If it's only for this life we have hope in Christ, whatever our fears and struggles in this unjust and dark world, they're ultimately temporary. Our hope isn't a wish, it's a person. We read this in the book of Hebrews. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Isn't that good? An anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, another translation says, where our pioneer, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. We get a lot of imagery here from the Jewish temple. In the temple, there was a curtain that was a physical representation, a reminder, a metaphor of the separation between a holy God and sinful people. And what the book of Hebrews is telling us is is that it's as if Jesus has, has tore away that curtain. He has entered in on our behalf and given us access to God once and for all, forever. Jesus promised us that I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. I read from John 14 and every funeral I can. Another place in that chapter, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. Friends, there's hope for eternity because God promised you. God is with you, God goes before you, and God promised you. This is the reason for the hope that we have. Every Christmas, we get the opportunity to reflect on the question, what if? Now, do you default to this worst-case scenario line of thinking? It's very easy and very understandable for fear to crowd out hope. 
Now, some of us do this because it's in our nature. And some of us do this because we've learned from experience. And I don't want to minimize those things. Friends, there will always be plenty of reasons to fear and to play it safe. The list of hypotheticals that give rationale for us to experience failure in advance is infinite. We can give in to fear and play it safe. But I'm glad Joseph didn't. And my prayer is that you too can claim the hope of our Savior Jesus. Don't let a worst case mentality prevent you from receiving God's best. Friends, may you know the hope of Christ. Hope for today, hope for tomorrow, and hope for eternity. And everybody said, amen. amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this sanctuary, this appointment with you. God, would you help us kind of sweep away those irrational fears we have and, and put them in their place? God, even more so, would you help us to bring into the light those things that we fear. God, we have several excellent reasons to be fearful. And in this moment, I ask that you would let your word drown out those voices of fear. That you offer us an anchor for our soul that with you our burden can be easy. And that you will not leave us as orphans. God, whatever we're in fear of this season, we give it up to you as a part of our worship. God, if this is just one step in a long process, then we'll take it. But we want to receive your hope in the place of our fears. God, be near to us that we would know your promises are true and that we can claim your hope for today and for tomorrow and for all eternity. We thank you for the gift of the Messiah, our Savior, Yeshua, that he came to save us from our sins. And God, we ask that you would give us the hope not just to endure until his return, but to help make your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's in his precious holy name we pray, this Christ child that we await. Amen.